So we finished up our study of Jesus' early years last week. That series ended with his temptation in the wilderness. After being brutally tempted, Jesus finally banished Satan from him, saying, get out of my sight, Satan. I mean, that is literally what the Greek here means. It's get out of my sight, Satan. It is written, you shall worship God alone. Only him shall you serve. And you know what? Satan leaves and the angels come and minister to Jesus. And that's the last thing that happens before Jesus steps into the limelight. The class series we're beginning today is called Jesus Begins Ministry, and it'll be a relatively short series, only four classes long. And after that, we'll dive into a longer series covering Jesus' teachings and parables. But before we begin today, I want to point out two really important things we need to learn from the temptation. The first and foremost is that Satan or destructive forces or thoughts or however it is that you perceive evil will ultimately give up. Jesus' strategy is our strategy. His strategy was first recognize and acknowledge the evil thoughts. Don't just put them down and ignore them. I mean, notice when something evil is is in your life and affecting you. Second, stop shooting on yourself, as someone told me once. Satan used that all the time with Jesus. Satan told Jesus, well, you should turn these stones into bread and feed yourself. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Do what you have the power to do. So you, you hear that accusing, sh- you should, in that, in that um, uh, phrase. And the next is if someone is quoting a Bible verse to you, and it doesn't resonate with your knowledge of God's character, of who God is, be assured that there's a passage elsewhere or a bigger context that speaks to a larger, deeper truth. And lastly, be firm with your boundaries and tell evil, no, go away. You are speaking with the full weight and authority of Jesus, who has given us, as John told us, the authority to be children of God, born of God. The second thing I want to point out is that when it says the angels come to minister to Jesus, the word used for minister is diakonun. It's where we get our English word for deacon. It means to bring food and drink and tend to someone's physical needs. Deacons in our churches should be like the angels bringing sustenance to Jesus after his long, arduous testing. At this point, I think Jesus has been a teacher and rabbi in Galilee for a long, long time. So in a sense, his ministry is nothing new. He's already got pupils. That's the Greek word translated as disciples. And there's at this point, there's no hierarchy at all, no big 12. At the moment, this is just a ragtag band of folks who have begun following him around as he teaches people in Galilee about God. 
I think what changes after his baptism and the wilderness experience is that he now begins to speak the good news with new power and confidence. And he begins to gather more and more pupils around him, just like the prophets in the Hebrew Bible had disciples who learned their teachings, followed their example, and wrote down their sayings. That's how we got the great books of biblical prophecy in the first place, from the schools that grew up around these famous prophets. And that's exactly how we get the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As Jesus is ministering to the people, he and his followers travel south from Galilee towards Judea, and they end up down near the place where John the Baptist is baptizing folks. Jesus takes his pupils aside and spends some time with them, teaching them and baptizing them. Of course, John the Baptist's disciples notice that Jesus is baptizing people and they are not happy about the competition. They go to John the Baptist and say, look, that guy you said was greater than you is baptizing people and everyone is going over there to him. And John tells them, I can only give what I have received. I am only the friend of the bridegroom. The bride belongs to the bridegroom, not the friend. He must become greater than I. What a beautiful, humble man John the Baptist is. He understands what it means to be Elijah to the Messiah. For these next words in the story, I want you to remember that this particular story is only in the Gospel of John and that And that's John the Disciple, whose book is not so much a history of Jesus' life, but is the first attempt at forming a theology around who Jesus was, or it's an early attempt, may or may not be the first. John inserts this comment, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. Uh, These words are, John has them in the mouth of Jesus. The one who believes in the Son has life forever, but the one who refuses to be persuaded will not perceive this life, and the steadfast anger of God abides on him. Now, this passage is in John 3, 31 through 36, and I'm like, what? All of that sounded exactly right until that last phrase. That last phrase about the steadfast anger of God abiding on him, that just doesn't sound like God. Whenever that happens, we need to pull out our backpack tools and get to work. What does that word, translated anger, mean? Well, there's several words in Greek that are used in the New Testament for anger. They run the gamut of emotions from exasperation to out-of-control rage. This, The one used here, this particular one, is orge. Um, it's that last one. And that word alone can run the gamut of emotions from indignation to wrath. So. It's the the translation is according to context. 
it's usually simply translated as anger um, in, in English. But what if in this context in John, what if it means steadfast indignation? That makes a lot more sense to me theologically. What if steadfast indignation is how God feels towards someone who refuses to see the offer of life? I mean, after all, God has tried and tried and tried to give us life and blessings. And now Jesus has come in person with signs to prove he is from God. And still we hide our faces from God. So you have at least two options here, and they're both equally valid based on the words and the context. The first is that John really believes that if you refuse to believe Jesus is the son of God, God's steadfast anger will abide on you. And this is traditionally how this verse is taught and would be culturally consistent with how ancient peoples viewed gods in general. But I think it's not consistent with what we know of the merciful, loving character of God. God did not bring Jesus here in order to stomp on us. I just don't believe that. So the second translation option would be that John is saying that if you stubbornly refuse to believe God's good intent, even after Jesus coming, then God will be equally stubbornly indignant with you. This is something to ponder in your own heart, holding it against the plumb line of the Holy Spirit who bears witness within you to who God is. Well, after the confrontation between John the Baptist's disciples and Jesus' disciples, Jesus travels back north towards Galilee. It's probably best to put a little distance between these hotheads. To do this, he has to pass through Samaria, and it is a long, dusty journey. In any case, about noon that day, they come to a well in Samaria. Jesus is tired. He sits down at the well to rest, and his disciples run on into town to buy some food. As Jesus is sitting there, a woman comes to draw water. Jesus commands her, give me a drink. I know some translations make this exchange a lot politer, but the Greek is actually in the imperative. He demands a drink from her. The woman is utterly shocked. She says, wait, you're a Jew and you're speaking to a Samaritan? Now, to get this, you have to know that the Samaritans are a splinter group from the Jews. Nearly a thousand years earlier, when civil war divided Israel into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, the northern kingdom got the part that didn't have Jerusalem in it. So they had their capital in Samaria, and they set up their own temple. For nearly a thousand years, they have believed that God's dwelling is not on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, but is on Mount Gerasim in Samaria in their temple. This made the northern Jews, who came to be called Samaritans, anathema to the southern Jews. 
and it's only been 150 years since the Hasmonean high priest, John Hyrcanus of Jerusalem, used his armed forces to destroy the Samaritan's temple on Mount Gerizim. That is a fresh wound. The Jews and the Samaritans are not on speaking terms. They hate each other. Furthermore, the woman points out that she is, well, a woman. What on earth is a Jewish man doing talking to her? And Jesus says, well, if you only knew who it is that is asking you for water, you would ask him to give you living water. She says, Lord, which simply means sir in this day and age. Sir, how would you get this living water? You don't have anything to draw it out of the well with. Are you going to dig your own well? The language here is a little weird, and this is my understanding of what she means when she says, are you greater than Jacob, our ancestor, who dug this well? And Jesus says, well, anyone who drinks water from this well will get thirsty again. But anyone who drinks from the water I give them will never be thirsty. In fact, the water I give them will bubble up in them, becoming a spring of eternal life, life-giving. Now, the woman gets kind of snarky with him at this, at this point and says, well, I want some of that water. Then I won't have to keep coming out here all the time to drink, to draw water out of this well. And she probably thinks he's a little nuts. And Jesus says, all right, go call your husband and come back here. And the woman shoots back, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you are right about that. You have had five husbands. And the man you're with right now is not one of them. Well, that stops her in her tracks. The woman realizes all of a sudden that this man must be a Jewish prophet. So she brings up to him the deepest wound of her people, the thing that hurts her heart the most, the thing that prevents them from ever reconciling with the Jews. She says, our ancestors have always worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say we cannot worship in our own way. You say we have to go to Jerusalem to worship. And here on Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans had built a temple in opposition to the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus gives his answer to world religions. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation, that, is, that word means rescue, is from the Jews. Jesus agrees with her that the Samaritans and the Jews worship differently. He doesn't go so far as to say the Samaritans worship a different God, just that they don't know what they worship. Then Jesus adds an amazing statement. It's a condition applying to both the heretical Samaritans and to the Jews. Jesus says, but God is spirit and those who worship him must therefore worship in spirit and in truth. The word translated truth here also means reality. 
you can translate it either way. I think Jesus means reality here, but that is just my opinion. Jesus says this is the kind of worshiper God wants. No faking it. Jesus does not say that God particularly cares whether you are a Samaritan or a Jew, does he? What he says is that what matters to God is that you worship God as God is, as spirit, not tied to any particular place. And also that you worship in truth, in your actual present reality, which would mean that you are genuinely worshiping in spirit and not just saying empty words or faking piety. You are worshiping in relationship. Now, the woman is completely confused by this. She definitely does not get this. She says, okay, then, well, I know the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. She basically tells Jesus his answer was not all that helpful. <laughs> and Jesus says, I, the person speaking to you, I am the Messiah. If you notice, this is the first time Jesus has ever actually said those words, at least in the stories available to us. John the Baptist has said things. God has spoken from heaven with his approval of his beloved son. But it is to a non-Jew, a heretic, and a woman that, that Jesus first speaks his own truth. The woman is flabbergasted. A man she now knows is the Messiah has just told her she's had five husbands and is now living with a sixth man, which is all true and he had no way of knowing. And he's told her he will give her water that will bubble up eternally. This is huge. Right about then, the disciples get back to the well with lunch. They are shocked that Jesus is talking to a woman, but none of them is brave enough to call him out about it. The woman takes off running. She goes back to town and says to the people, there's a man out by the well who told me everything I ever did. I think, is it possible that he could be the Messiah? And of course, everyone comes to see. Meanwhile, back at the well, the disciples are urging Jesus to eat some of the you know, food they brought. But he says, I already have food. They look around. They ask each other. <laughs> Could someone have brought him something to eat already? They don't understand that Jesus is filled to the brim with this powerful exchange with this non-Jewish woman. This woman who had such a deep wound in her heart over how to seek God and be the, a woman whose whole people had been denied access to God because they were worshiping the wrong way, according to the Jews. She felt like they had been denied access to God. Jesus is here to say, no, God is spirit. Worship God as in spirit and in your own reality. Jesus explains to his disciples, doing the will of the one who sent me is my food. So think about that. 
what exactly has Jesus been doing? What aroused such a strong response of the Spirit in Jesus in this exchange? It is giving the good news to this Samaritan woman that God desires anyone who will worship both in spirit and reality. This exchange welled up a huge response in both the woman and Jesus. This is the good news. This is what the Messiah came to do. Jesus says to his disciples, open your eyes. Look at the fields. They are ripe and ready for harvest. Reap and receive wages. Harvest of fruit resulting in everlasting life so that both the harvester and the one who sowed the seed may rejoice together. I have sent you to reap what you have not prepared. Others have done the hard work. You have entered into the results of their labor. Now, the disciples probably have no idea what he's talking about. They thought they were just bringing him lunch. At that moment, the townspeople arrive and Jesus speaks with them. And he stays in that Samaritan town for two days at the urging of the people. And as a result, many of the Samaritans come to believe that he is indeed the Messiah sent by God. They tell the woman, we no longer believe just because you said he told you everything you ever did. Now we believe because we have heard him ourselves and we know this man really is the savior, the rescuer of the world. Such a beautiful simple statement. I have come to believe that they are one of the first groups to understand that Jesus is not coming as a military king. No, he's coming with eternal life, good news for all the world, not just the Jews. Then something terrible happens. John the Baptist has been baptizing folks along the Jordan River in Perea, that southern region in purple there that's ruled by Herod Antipas. Now, John has really ticked Herod Antipas off for calling him out when he had an affair with his sister-in-law and married her, as well as calling him out for all sorts of other horrible things he'd done. Then Herod Antipas orders John's arrest. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, is thrown into prison. When Jesus hears this terrible news, he travels straight home from the wilderness of Judea to Nazareth, where I'm sure all his family gathers in alarm and grief at what has happened to John. For Jesus, this is the signal. He needs to step up now. Jesus moves away from home, perhaps for the safety of his family. He moves from Nazareth in the mountains to Capernaum, a fishing village on the northern shore of Galilee. Jesus and his family seem to have strong ties in Capernaum. Um, Jesus has lots of friends there. I'm thinking he's probably got family there, and maybe he spent his summers there during his childhood. Maybe it would be easier for him to slip through the hands of authorities in a busy fishing village rather than exposed on a mountaintop. From that time on, Matthew and Mark say, Jesus begins preaching all over Galilee, and this is what he preaches. Time has come to a head. 
The kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, this sounds to me exactly like what his cousin John the Baptist was preaching before his arrest, doesn't it? Jesus is picking up the message and preaching it loud and clear despite the danger of arrest. And notice the end time messianic language. Jesus isn't saying there will come a time like the prophecies in the Hebrew Bible say. Jesus is saying quite explicitly that the time has come. The kingdom of God is here now. And when he says repent, that word means to change your mind, to change what you intend to do. And then he says, believe it. This good news of God's favor and desire to heal and to bless is yours. So here's a cool thing that Matthew points out. When Jesus moves from Nazareth to Capernaum, he's moving from the ancient region given to the tribe of Zebulun to the region given to the tribe of Naphtali, way back when the Israelites first entered the promised land. And one of the three ancient routes through Palestine, one of their three big highways, if you will, runs right by Capernaum and Nazareth, both. It's called the Way of the Sea, the Via Maris, and it runs down from the north, hits the Sea of Galilee at Capernaum, veers west until it eventually hits the sea coast and continues south. And Matthew remembers a messianic prophecy in Isaiah 9 that says, there will be no more gloom for those who are in, in distress. In the past, Zebulun and Naphtali were unimportant, but in the future, the Lord will honor Galilee by the way of the sea. Wow, that's back in Isaiah. That's back like 700 years ago. That's pretty amazing. But what's even more amazing is the rest of Isaiah's prophecy here. Matthew only quotes this part. He says, those walking in darkness have seen a great light, and a light has shined on those dwelling in the shadow of death. Now, this is another very famous passage, and one all the Jews recognize immediately as being from Isaiah 9. They would know the whole rest of the prophecy. This is a big deal prophecy that they've been studying for 700 years. So Matthew just quotes a snippet, but here's the rest of it. For unto us a child is born, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father Everlasting, Prince of Peace, and he will reign on the throne of David with justice and righteousness forever. Matthew's not talking about geography here. He's talking about Jesus being the Messiah, the prophesied king who will reign on the throne of David forever. Now notice, (laughs) this is so good. A Roman could read the snippet in Matthew's book and not realize what he's saying because Matthew did not finish his quote. He did not write in this part about reigning on the throne of David forever. But every Jew who reads Matthew's book knows exactly who he's saying Jesus is. 
Isn't that amazing? The good news is good news indeed. But in our breakout groups, I want to go back and reflect on what we've learned about evil and how Jesus responded to it. The good news is what gives us life. Evil tries to rob us of it. We can get so sucked into the evil that we can't see anything but that. So let's take a closer look at how Jesus handled evil and kept it from robbing him of his joy. <laughs> so I hope that this was a fruitful discussion. What, what came up for you all? <laughs> Well, we ended up the discussion not totally off subject, but a very good place. I will say that. Thanks to yeah. Mary. Yeah. <laughs> Tell Mary us about up. it. Tell us about it. Well, I said, and, um, and you all that know me know I come out of the Catholic tradition, and the part that I love so desperately is the story of the woman at the well for so many reasons and reasons that all our group identified. There was no judgment. There was inclusion. And I said, you know, for me, what strikes me is that, and Gil, I'm drawing on your words, that um, that was the first time he revealed who he was who, and he chose to reveal himself to a woman. And, and then she went back to her community, and you said that was the first time that a community started to understand that his mission was peacemaker and messiah and, and all the things we know about our God and not the warrior king. Um, and I just said, you know, in my tradition, it's wrestling with, and I told Gail when I first met her, I'm in awe of any ordained woman priest that I meet. Because I just think that is the fullness of our belief in the divine. It's not male or female. It's both and. And, um, and I'm sad in my tradition that we believe in both and, but we have not stepped forward to ordain women. So this, this is the woman at the well is one story that I deeply love. It challenges me in my own faith tradition. I wrestle with it every time. I'm in joy at the fact that he chose a woman and, uh, you know, was pointed out that it was a Sumerian woman, a woman with five husbands. I mean, all the things we know, and yet, the Christ chose her to reveal himself. And I, I put it very locally. All of us that are mothers know sometimes our children will come and tell things that may, maybe they won't say to dad. You know, I mean, a role, that feminine side that allows and nurtures that telling of the deepest of us. Not that men don't do it too, but... Uh, I'm a mother, and I just know that my little boy would say, Mama, can I tell you? Well, yeah, you can, you know. <laughs> I, I love this story. I, I, we really focused on that a lot, but it was such a rich, rich interfaith conversation, Gail. We thank you all for <laughs> It's kind of a different way to look at it, I think, probably, than, it's, than you've usually heard. Um, what mm -hmm. else? Yeah, yeah. Julie, Julie um, brought up the fact that um, 
frequently when this story is preached or taught, the focus is on the fact that this woman had five husbands and now is living with a man she's not married to. And it's, it's focusing on this sexual thing. When, you know, you mentioned, Gail, that, that um, she opened her heart and expressed her deepest pain to this stranger at the well, and her deepest pain had nothing to do with her sex life. It had to do with, I can't worship God the way I was taught to worship God. And that the point was that Jesus said, God is here for everyone. And that God sort of bypassed all of the stuff that people would tend to focus on in this woman's life. She's a Samaritan, so she's a heretic. She's a woman. She's, you know, had six men at least that we know of. And and instead, Jesus drilled right to the core, which was you feel cut off from God. God is not cut off from you. That's pretty yeah. powerful. That was and awesome. If, and if Jesus could say that about her, who had every disadvantage, everything going the wrong way for her, being a, a woman, a Samaritan, having all these husbands, if, and then Jesus was saying that it's available for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's One a shame that we took away, in, in addition to all these other wonderful things that we took away, is the fact that God values women. Because over and over and over. In many, many religions, women are not valued. And this was not a go and sin no more kind of situation mm -hmm. either. He, I think he understood the trauma she had experienced, you know? And I tell you, the um, if you watch The Chosen, that TV series, they do oh, a yeah. fabulous job uh, of picking up that thread, that this particular thread of Jesus... Um, locking in on her trauma um, in, in this particular episode about the woman at the well. So it's a it's a different. They they get to embellish in ways that I don't because I'm sticking to right. the text. But, <laughs> but but what how how they handled it was really beautiful. Well, and one thing we said, Gail, or I said, and I think I had agreement is all of us come out of traditions, you know. So we bring the beauty of it and the joy of it and the wound of it. I, you know, there's a history of wounding in organized religion. And, and yet we, uh, you know, I quoted Richard Rohr. He says, a mature spiritual mind holds the paradox. And the paradox is you can see the beauty in your tradition and you can hold the wounding as well. And I think that that's what this whole story was about that you know she had the wounding and and jesus was not judging it he was welcoming it it was you know revealing it back to her which a good so does you listen to what your <laughs> patient says and then you bear it back to them you know because that's the wound and uh it just something you said that i as old as i am i never got it i just never got it when you talked about the spirit and about the view on world's religions that you 
you worship in, and I don't even like the word worship personally, that, but that's another conversation. I don't think our God requires that. But um, the putting together the reality and in, in the spirit, that was a different way I have heard that. And I thank you for that because that was something I've never heard said that way. And it took me to, we've always been involved in other churches because I believe our God's real big. And <laughs> this little church that we would visit at times in California, they would say, listen, after the readings, they would say, listen to what the spirit is saying to you. Now, in my tradition, I was a lector and we would say the word of God. That's how we end it. But in the Episcopal Church, they would say, listen to what the Spirit... And all of a sudden today, all of that made sense. <laughs> when you explain that, you know, the Spirit and the reality. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting that you said that, Mary, because um, I'm, I'm now... Uh, I have recently become a Methodist, which is a very new um, tradition for me. Me too. And after the scripture reading in the morning, they always end with, for the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Ooh. Thanks to God. I like that. Ours just says the word of God for the people of God. And then we say, thanks be to God. Yeah. But, but I like that sort of, you know, looking at it, it kind of, I think, goes back to the Methodist quadrilateral thing where you're looking at what's in scripture and you're looking at what is tradition, but you're also looking at how the spirit speaks to you as an individual. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, I, and I think what I was trying to tease out um, of the verse here was that we, you know, we just roll, if you're a lifelong Christian, this just rolls off the tongue, worship in spirit and truth, you know, and, <laughs> and truth then gets defined in a baseball bat kind of way. Um, it's, it's who, you know, whose truth are we talking about at that point? And, and um, people claim to know the truth and right. um, where, where the only actual truth is God. It's, Jesus, it's the Holy Spirit. It's that is truth, and that's like Mary said, God is big, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and this and and being able to know that that it is equally valid to translate that word as reality. That makes so much more sense to me. In, in terms of Jesus was always boots on the ground. He was here's how you do it in your life right now he he was he doesn't make a lot of theological statements at least so far if you've noticed mm -hmm. um the theological statements he does make have been pinned by john the disciple um it's the stuff you know so so whether jesus said it or not i'm not here to i'm not you know i don't that's above my pay grade but, <laughs> but um and, and nothing that is said is wrong. It's just that when, um, when I see the humanity of Jesus and how he reaches out to people and touches people in their hurt, I don't see a baseball bat in his hand. Mm -hmm. I agree. Mm -hmm. What else did y'all talk about? Did you talk? Did anybody talk about anything on the questions? 
Well, we had a really nice discussion about the first one. Okay, pull pull up a little bit, Julie, so we can hear you. Choke it. We had a really nice discussion about the first one and uh, the about evil coming into your life, you know, and 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 um, you know, we it we came up with all sorts of things like. Um, well, I'm going to have to have everybody else say, but, you know, <laughs> because I can't remember everything. Um, but, um, well, okay. Marlene, <laughs> speak for me, please. <laughs> you said a lot about, um, you know, abuse and feeling shame and uh, taking responsibility for things that we're not, you're not remotely responsible for. Yeah. Um, and then Woody, I think you should talk to, um, but the idea of frequently, you know, we are taught that even if we have a thought that comes in our head that is evil or hurtful or inconsistent, you know, sinful, that we are to blame for having had that thought and that that means we are a terrible person and that means we are broken and that means God can't look on us and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, where um, especially people who have been abused, um, anything wrong that happens, they take the blame for. It must have been me. I, mean, I can't think of what I would have done wrong, but I must have done something wrong because you know this is happening to me. I deserved it. And, and then if we have a thought that would be considered an evil thought or a selfish thought or an angry thought or you know whatever, then I am a terrible person and and um, and it becomes an additional burden of self-loathing and self-denial. And then an, another way that people react to uh, evil thoughts is to blame others, not ourselves, but to be judgmental and blame others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And isn't it interesting that in the wilderness, Jesus had these evil thoughts? I mean, we talked about that too. <laughs> it's personified in the story as Satan speaking, but we're talking about the same thing here, right? Yeah, yeah. We 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 were talking about that too. That that Jesus, in order to fully experience humanity, had to be fully human, and therefore the experience of the temptations in the wilderness. Um, whether it was actually Satan, an entity who was having this dialogue or an internal dialogue that Jesus was having. Um, and it was presented as a personification who was doing the tempting. Um, that's a very human thing. Mm -hmm. and, no. and Julie brought up the fact that, you know, Jesus needed to be fully human and not just god in in the human body and those experiences allowed him to empathize with other people who were having evil or selfish or sinful thoughts thank you marlene for explaining what i was saying <laughs> jesus was jesus is has come to show us how to be children of God who are experiencing our humanity. 
um, I think Chardin said something like, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. And I think that is what Jesus was coming to show us. Jesus was coming to flip the, 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 our whole understand our whole worldview upside down. Um, so um, what about um, that last question about seeing people um, where we're, where we're seeing other people living a sinful lifestyle or making terrible choices or harming other people in the world. I mean, I, I, you know, we're, we're fighting wars right now in the world over some of this stuff, um, both, both with bullets and with the ballot box. Um, what, where is Jesus in this? question <laughs> loves well you said something gail a couple of weeks back that stuck with me is you said that god never runs out of mercy so he is always offering mercy to everybody not just the good people not everybody so when something's going on you have to remember that even though a person's actions may not be what I would want somebody to do. God is still trying to reach out to him. Because I always had this thought, why didn't God just stop it? Why didn't he stop Hitler? Why didn't he stop slavery? Why didn't he just stop it? I never even thought about it coming from God's point of view. As, as continuing to offer mercy. Yeah. You know, it's a it's a dilemma for us as humans um, about how do we protect those who are weaker? How do we protect ourselves um, without doing violence to the other person? Um, how do we? It, and I'm not suggesting I have an answer. I'm just bringing it up in the context of of how Jesus faces evil in the world. And um, one of the things that strikes me is he did not come as a military king. That how Jesus addressed evil in the world was by addressing it within his sphere of influence. By healing those he came in contact with. And that if we are following Jesus, that is what we can do. Healing, some some and, of us have a bigger sphere of influence than others. Healing and, healing and forgiving and loving. That's right. Those are all synonyms, I think. And some, some people are really different. hard to love. <laughs> That's right. But, but focusing on what we actually have in the circle of our lives we can do a great deal of good if we are not encased in our homes whenever the subject of love comes up i always have to remind myself that christian love is not that doesn't mean you you have you feel warm fuzzies 
for somebody, it means you act in their best interest. It, and acting in their best interest may include healing and all sorts of other things, but it doesn't mean feeling warm fuzzies. Exactly. That I always think about is God loves them as much as he loves me. You know, and that kind of brings down the hate or that inner whatever issues going on. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's fear that's going on, oh, yeah. right, Gladys? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes our sphere of influence is within the walls of our home. I know it is for Gladys right now. That is where her love is being expressed in a self-sacrificial way. And that's not necessarily the case for me. You know, I, my sphere of influence is a little bit in different places right now, just because of the, and, and each of us is in a different place in different seasons of our life. I think all that Jesus and the the verse that I highlighted was was all about being aware that the time is here, the time is now, that we're that we are being called to pay attention, not to live on our iPads. <laughs> so for whatever that's worth. Okay, we're about to wrap it up today. Any any last comments? It was great. I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Witty. I had a very random thought. Um, somebody, I guess, I can't remember if it was you that said this or, or somebody in our breakout group, but it was like, after he started preaching, a lot of people started following Jesus. And so he had a group around him already before he chose his disciples. Yeah. And that was, that was my new thought to me. I had always assumed that, that he just saw these two fishermen who were complete strangers and said, follow me. And they just dropped everything, hopped up, right? And no wonder we think this is nuts. <laughs> You're not the only one who's thought that all their lives. I can tell you that. <laughs> no, no, I agree, Woody. I thought the same thing. He had followers before then. <laughs> he's bound to have been teaching in the synagogue as he's growing up. I mean, if you're called with pastoral skills, I was a pastor for years and years and years and years before I ever went to seminary, you know, and poor Shelby, he's, Shelby would say, well, I'll be your congregation of one, honey. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> when I would over it. <laughs> so, you know, Jesus, this, Jesus knows how to teach. He's got people who, you know, follow around to listen to him. And as he begins to come out of the, the wilderness experience, and as he's baptized and and as John the Baptist is knocked out of the picture by Herod Antipas the time comes for Jesus to really step out um, and do you do, do you think that that is why Matthew made the point to include the story of him as a boy in the temple sitting around with the elders and amazing them with his wisdom I do that was before he turned 13. That yes. was before he was considered a man and he was wise beyond his years. Yes. Yes. And, and people could see this man is going to be a teacher. Yes. Yes. So we're learning. I'm, I'm hoping that as we go through these classes, I'm, I'm trying to really 
um, pull back the curtains um, and strip off just the automatic things that we think of and that we have rushed past and try to connect how this all happened in a very human way for Jesus and for us. And I hope you enjoy it. I love doing oh, it with you. Uh, Bye. I totally enjoy Bye. it. Bye. Bye.